This is Our Common Ground with Janice Graham, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. Nineteen forty seven, at age eleven, my mama learned how a rope turns into more than just a rope. Looped around a branch where a tree becomes more than just a tree, where memory twists around more than just a mind like Willie Earl's neck and my mama's young heart. In Greenville, South Carolina, mama sees how memory hangs on each and every limb. So the puzzle, on one hand, is given how they respond to these exopoles and given where they fit within the class arrangement, meaning the majority of Black people fit within the class arrangement of American society, it seems to be in their material interest to vote for Sanders, but why didn't there? But it's also the most important question that we're probably able to get a better hand on is trying to explain the role of the Black political elite in how, in the discourse that they engage in and how they explain politics of their, uh, the people who, who they claim to represent. How do they define the issues? How do they define what's possible? And see that as, as a mechanism in terms of how they try to shape uh, Black political participation. But the British government failed. The Russian government failed. The Japanese government failed. The German government failed. And the United States of America government, when it came to treating her citizens of Indian descent fairly, she failed. She put them on reservations. When it came to treating her citizens of Japanese descent fairly, she failed. She put them in internment prison camps. When it came to treating the citizens of African descent fairly, America failed. She put them in chains. The government put them on slave quarters, put them on auction blocks, put them in cotton fields, put them in inferior schools, put them in substandard housing, put them in scientific experiments, put them in the lowest paying jobs, put them outside the equal protection of the law kept them out of their racist bastions of higher education and locked them into positions of hopelessness and helplessness. The government gives them the drugs, builds bigger prisons, passes a three-strike law, and then wants us to sing God bless America? No, no, no. Not God bless America. God Janice Graham. Our common ground, speaking truth to power and ourselves.
our common ground, a higher ground for discourse, discussion, solutions, and ideas. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Talk, talk, that talk, matters. 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 Transforming truth, truth, truth to power. One broadcast at a time. And now to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. And good evening to you and welcome to Our Common Ground. Thank you so very much for being with us. I am fired up tonight. We got some government cheese. (laughs) But we'll talk about that in the second hour. Um, Who moved my cheese? Well, Thank you for being with us uh, here at Our Common Ground. For those who are still coming in, uh, there are seats available in our chat room at blogtalkradio.com backslash OCG. I used to have to explain that to my mother all the time. She she never understood the backslash and where you find it, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> we hope that you have had a pretty decent week. Uh, having some moments of feeling liberated and free. Um, We don't have a lot of those here in America. Um, And we have to make way, make way. So uh, I hope you're being safe. Uh, We are still on our COVID-19 pandemic watch here at Our Common Ground. There have been 29 million cases since last we talked. Um, I I take that back. (laughs) Since the pandemic began. You know, I've been in isolation since last February uh, because of pre-existing conditions whole bunch of conditions. I'm a uh, cancer survivor, so I had to be real careful. And I took my second dose of the COVID-19 vaccine, Moderna. And we can talk about that in the second hour because, you know, there's some things. They do monstrous Frankenstein kind of stuff to you uh, when when they are uh, trying to save your life, trying to when you are battling, uh, I used to call it making cancer my bitch. So um, to take a little shot, (laughs) piece of cake, piece of cake, piece of cake. I see that um, uh, the Our Common Ground Administrator, uh, Elle Michelle, has just come into the room. Thank you, my dear, for being with us tonight. Uh, But the other thing that you should know, that to date, 5.69 million doses of COVID vaccine has been administered. Um, 2.9 million of those dosages are people who have been fully vaccinated. People like me, they gave me a sticker. I took that sticker off. 
Uh, I think I put it on my car seat. And that only accounts for 9.34% of uh, all of the persons uh, who have uh, in the country, in the population. And 3,641,725 doses uh, persons have been administered the first dosage, and that's 16.9%. So um, that might be part of your cheese from the government um, right now. So I, I wanted you to know that, but what we must keep in mind is that we must continue to have a safety protocol in our lives. Simply because I have had both dosages does not mean that I won't wear a mask, and I double mask, that uh, when I go out, which is very infrequent, but when I go out, when you open doors, other people's car doors, the door to the grocery store, whatever, um, that you ensure that you are sanitizing the places where you place your hands. You know, and one of the things they don't talk about anymore is not to put your hands in your face. I guess people who wear masks don't do that too much. I notice that I don't do that um, a lot. But anyway, I want you, I want the Our Common Ground family and everyone to be safe. And if you if you have these safety protocols, washing your hands frequently and washing your hands with antibacterial soap, um, it, it, it's it's it, it's a safety measure for you and it's a safety measure for others, especially your family. So if you have had your vaccination, uh, don't go crazy. You still got to do these things because. We can't be hard, hard-headed. 523,000 people who are residents or citizens in the United States have died as a result of infection in this, in this, with this virus or complications caused by the infection. So we hope that you will stay safe. We've got a couple of things that we want to do. I want to send out a shout-out to my dear sister, Dr. Vanilla Randall. She's a former law professor at Dayton University Law School, a former uh, Ph.D. nurse in public health administration, and she is the major blogger, blogger at raceandracism.org. Today is her birthday. Happy birthday, Dr. V, and we hope you had a good one. The other is, um, I don't know how many, how many of you uh, love re- uh, reggae. We had to say farewell to Jabi, Sonny Whaler. His, his real name, most people don't even know his real name. His real name is Neville O'Reilly Livingston, also known as Bunny Whaler. He's the last of the legendary uh, reggae trio, the Whalers. He's died. Um, he passed away in Kingston on Tuesday morning. He was 73 years old, and his death came on the heels of reggae toastmaster, 
Uroy, who died two weeks ago. So for those, for reggae and whalers uh, fans, um, that's a good one. Um, we will note and we'll talk about in our second hour, and I hope our guests will stay around to talk with, because he will be a great one to talk with about the 10 hours of reading the bill, the 24 hours of the debate, and the Senate passed today the $1.9 trillion COVID relief plan, and we're going to talk about what um, what is in that plan. In addition, uh, this week the House passed the George Floyd Justice in Policy Plan, in Policing Plan, I'm sorry, um, and we're going to talk about that because I'm not so sure, first of all, if it has any meat, and second of all, if it will ever get through the Senate because even though um, the Confederacy is in the minority in the Senate, we don't have enough meat in our advocacy and kick-ass kind of strategy going on with the Democrats to get, to get things through in their in the form that makes them effective. So we're going to be talking about that. The other is I do have to tip my hat to Latasha Brown and Stacey Adams in the lead because black people have saved America once again. So, you know, in the in the second hour if you want to add to all of that or you want to um, ping from another perspective that you figured out, uh, please uh, do, and you need to write it down. Our number is 347-838-9852. We've got a lot of stuff to do tonight, and I do thank you so very much. Tonight we're framing our discussion uh, with a very, with one of the, the premier black political thought leaders in the country. And he is Professor Willie Leggett. I am calling him because I have looked and read at all of, uh, all of uh, his work that's available on the Internet, and now I want to see his notebooks, but I, I am calling him a political systems analyst. He is also an organizer. He is uh, a political scientist. You know, like, take science. You all know science is a field of study, and he does it in the political ring. And he taught it. He is the uh, professor emeritus of political science at South Carolina State University. He is also a South Carolina activist and lead organizer for Medicare for All South Carolina. And he was a Labor Party candidate for South Carolina Senate. You can find most of his writings on Common Dreams, and we can say that he is an activist journalist. And uh, I love the idea that he partners up with uh, Adolph Reed, um, 
we we have never had Adolf Reed on our common ground. I'm not sure why, but uh, his son, Ture Reed, was with us um, in November. Um, and if you look at the work of of our guest tonight, Professor Willie Leggett, and the conversations and exchanges that he has with his partner in crime, because they are really cracking the political system that says that somehow black people are all black voters are all the same that uh, uh they are the clarion cry of we are taken black people are taken hostage by not only the media, but by the people that we vote for. And the people that we vote for somehow have a dimming of their understanding of what we want, what we challenge them to do for us, and what we get. And so I am real pleased to have Professor Willie Leggett with us tonight. Professor, thank you so much for joining us. It's such a pleasure to meet you. Okay, yes. I hit the wrong button. Pardon me? Thank you so very much for joining us tonight. It's a real pleasure to meet you. Thank you so much. Uh, it's an honor to be here, and with that introduction, at one point I was wondering, were you really talking about me? But I will try to live up to the billing. Well, Thank you, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't, um, I, I had a conversation, I will, an uh, uh, exchange with uh, Pascal Robert and um, Jason Miles night before last, and and this had, I've been doing this for 34 years, uh, before there was email, before there was any of that stuff. On terrestrial radio I started for many, many years, and I always said, Professor Leggett, if I can't say to you, I respect you. You don't get to share my mic. That's, you know, and and that leaves out a lot of people. So (laughs) let's start with the lessons of politics. You know, one of the reasons that I really want to talk to, to you is because I think that South Carolina was the absolute prime example of what happens to us as a people uh, in a lot of different ways politically. So give us a little lesson about what happened and how Joe Biden became the president of the United States. Wow, that's that's a good question. And I think I I want to tie that in with – uh, the topic or the title aligning black policy artists in the game of electoral politics and how we ended up with uh, Joe Biden. Also, like uh, in your email, when you raised the question, uh, what black people are you talking about? Because that is an acknowledgement of division and class division among black people. And while 
scholars uh, now at least acknowledging those divisions, they don't appropriately deal with the implications of those divisions and how that relates uh, to politics and public policy. And so I think <clears throat> I want to make, make, make um, three observations um, as a way to leading us up to how did Joe Biden become the Democratic Party uh, nominee and how I think that is related to how the black political elite and um, observers of black politics, uh, in my view, incorrectly uh, identify and explain the problems that confront majority of black people. Uh, first, I think it's an interesting um, to observe that uh, it is now, over the last, I think, 30 or 40 years, becoming clear and clear while racism and racial discrimination remains factors in circumscribing black life chances, uh, racism, systemic racism, institutional racism, structural racism, all white privilege cannot explain the circumstance of the material life of black people today. That that life circumstances has to be understood within the context of American capitalism, American political economy. And in my view, the more and more that becomes clear, there's less, less and less willing political actors are prepared to confront it. And I think there are reasons for that that we can talk about, about uh, uh, later. So the uh, tie with the with the problem of determining the the, uh, the consistency of defining these problems in racial terms. The second, in relation to that, is the unwillingness to deal with um, these class contradictions that we, we talked about that I mentioned earlier, and the effort because of that. The political effort is largely to do racial inequalities or racial disparities as if this represents the interest of the race as a whole. Therefore, the politics is largely centered around race first and without consideration of, of what are specific policies that are necessary to deal with the most outstanding problems in the black community. Therefore, if you approach it from, from, from this race perspective, then you, you, you're unwilling to appreciate the policy of gender of a Bernie Sanders campaign. And we want to get back, back to that later. The third observation, and it's that we have this growing inequality, and, we are, and the painful insecurities of the working class people that manifest itself with COVID-19, yet uh, black political actors and, and analysis still fail to deal with how these objective problems of American political economy, healthcare system, uh, and insecurity of workers affect black people in a real way because the analysis began and end with racism. Uh, and let me uh, and so this begs for an explanation of how it is it that 
black voter registration, black voter participation, the increase in black elected officials, the increase in black appointed officials, yet there is a there is not a uh, commensurate improvement in the quality of life of the majority of black people. Right? And what we are now seeing is that as black people participate more and more, the gap between their policy needs and their participation continues to to widen as opposed to uh, narrowing. And so, well, <laughs> uh, when it came to uh, Bernie Sanders uh, and and the primary, then um, it was a classic example in which the black political elite failed to appreciate the uh, policy agenda of Sanders uh, because he approached uh, black problems in racial terms as opposed, I'm sorry, in class terms as opposed to uh, racial terms. And the problem is when we put race first in the way that these political axes do, they ignore the most fundamental problems that impact the majority of, of black people. Uh, a good example of this is uh, the relief bill that you mentioned opening up. Right? Uh, and, and to give a context for, for the point I want to make, in, in 2016, um, Donald Trump uh, embarrassed black elected officials by pointing out the problems in our, urban America and ask black people what it is that they would have to lose by voting for him. When he got elected the Congressional Black Caucus, wanting to make the point, point that there are a lot at stake, uh, submitted or introduced a Jobs and Justice Act, 1,300 pages. One of the demands of, uh, uh, in that act was for the minimum wage to $15 per hour. The, the, uh, the leader of Urban League, Morrell, made the point that they would want all candidates to address that issue. Well, come to this release, we don't get the $15 an hour. The Black Caucus did not lead in an effort to get that. So race first is really about um, addressing the needs and interests of the black middle class more so than working class people. Related to that is the efforts of uh, workers in Alabama to organize a union. 85% of the workers are black. We don't see um, the black caucus or civil rights leaders um, trying to 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 encourage uh, folks to vote in favor of union and showing those brothers and sisters supporting their efforts, because race first means the black people will join race first. Um, how do we so, begin, how do how do we begin to untangle you know 
you know, part of the problem has to do with how we organize. We think we can organize all the black people. <laughs> well, some right. of them black people I don't even want to have a conversation with, but we think we can just say, oh, we're having the black town town hall meeting. <laughs> okay. Right. Right. So how do we begin to untangle this? How, I mean, you know, and, and I keep going back to the Clyburn right. phenomenon in South Carolina. Well, that's, that's it. Let, let's talk about that for a moment, right? Um, because I think uh, that is, imp- is important to understand that <clears throat> black political activity. Well, first, I back up and talk about organizing for a moment, uh, and and understand how organizing differently from mobilizing, but 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 trying to pull black people, the majority of black people, together for some concrete policy objectives. Well, how do you bring them together? What do you talk about? Well, it seems to me as we have been doing in South Carolina uh, with Dale Jones, Douglas, and and uh, Medicare for all is that you talk to black people about real concerns that they have. Health care. Why they should be, um, should be concerned and why they want to support uh, Medicare for all policies. It, it doesn't make sense to call a meeting or try to organize black people around something out there called we fighting racism. That's never been the case and for all practical purposes. Uh, the, the while there's an understanding that racism is there, black people have always been organized in, in real sense, organized and mobilized around concrete problems and concrete policies. Mm-hmm. You know, saying how, how, how do you fight racism? Well, you don't. There's an abstraction. on what you fight all the manifestations of its practices in terms of public policy. And for black people now, it is clear the majority of black people, then, then their concerns uh, are largely the concerns of most working class people. Secure jobs, health care, decent education for themselves and their children, housing, secure retirement. And w- w- the, the effort is seen to mean the way we get out of where we are is to talk to black people, one that we don't normally talk to, and, um, uh, and talk to him about specific, broad public policy proposals to heighten their expectations about what, what government can and what government should do, and we have to pressure it to do so. And I think that's how we get out of this. It's not going to be easy, and it's not going to be, you know, fast. It's a long process of building a constituency around broad public policy. And it's important. I mean, it's fundamentally important um, to bring working-class black people uh, uh, along in this effort. Why? Because a representative in Congress and in legislatures 
are perceived, and particularly in Congress, the, the Congressional Black Caucus, because they state this and they stated this in their uh, bill in 2018. They are the conscience of the Congress. So they are perceived and want to be seen as a group of people in the country that represent the most oppressed and those in most need of public service. And and if the real battle, uh, particularly the inner special role for black uh, leftists, is is the raise questions about the limitations and constraints of those folks who claim to represent black people mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and demonstrate how that representation is indeed problematic. Uh, many of them are in the uh, supporters of, of or get the support of Wall Street and large corporations, and their representation is indeed problematic, as all uh, elected officials are. And mm-hmm. and that's another key factor to consider, that they are, in the final analysis, elected officials, that largely what distinguishes them from other elected officials at one fundamental level is that they play the significant role of legitimating public policies that have a harmful effect on the majority of black people. Mm-hmm. And I pretty and much have, have a I have go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm finished. Okay. I I pretty much have an idea of what your answer might be to this question. And that and and it really is to what extent do most black people who vote, voters, let's, let's just mm-hmm. take black voters. Right. Most right. black voters understand the impotence. <laughs> I know everybody went right. a little nuts. Impotence huh. of the black political elite. Um, I think that people in general do not understand how the the, the reliance that black elected officials have on the perception that black people support them, that black people like them, I mean, you know, and, right. and we can also talk about this game of, oh, I like so-and-so because he knows my name, he shakes my hand, he comes right. to my church. Well, um, again, a, a response to that or how we began to respond to that. Well, for, first of all, well, one, the best way to respond to that is open debate among black people about the quality of black representation. Amen. And And he's... And these folks have to be challenged in a serious way. And it's, 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 um, it's not so much um, it's not so much about uh, any one particular black um, elected official or maybe better, uh, better or worse than the other. We have to raise the question about the kinds of pressures that they are responding to. 
and the class interests that they really represent. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think the the the, um, the response to union organizing or things that are issues that specifically relate to black workers like what's happening in Alabama. And um, just think of the difference that that it would make if the Congressional Black Caucus, not uh, several members of the Black Caucus came down, and others, persons that are perceived to represent black people would endorse these people that work Amazon. Mm -hmm. But they don't. Mm -hmm. And in fact, uh, 50 so members of Congress wrote a letter to Bezos. Only five of the 50-something were black, telling him to accept the union. Only five were black. Now, suppose that was a request for him to have more black executives. I think we would have more black signatures than that. Mm-hmm. And uh, as a matter of fact, as a matter of fact, we're going to have um, um, Jarvu uh, Hill of the Mississippi Workers Center uh, for um, Human Rights on next week uh, to talk about what is happening at Amazon because Amazon is moving in, uh, even in in my community, uh, only about. I don't know how you count Florida blocks. I haven't learned that yet. Uh, right down the street, <laughs> in, walk, in, in walking distance. <laughs> um, a huge uh, distribution center. And my first question to my home owners association was, are these going to be uh, unionized workers? Right. Uh, you know that that should be your first that should be their first question in terms of understanding uh what's happening with this distribution center and what it means but anyway i i get, I get you um you know the thing is though, and I do have to say this is that most candidates, especially black candidates. They get told what the definition is of who they should be talking to and what they should be talking to them about. None of them, in my experience as an activist and as an organizer, has been that they want to talk to the tenants in the local public housing. Right, right. Or that they want to talk to... um, uh, do some organizing around all of the young people who work in, or workers who work in fast foods like McDonald's right. and Burger King and whatever. They, right. It's always they want to talk to somebody they saw on TV or somebody who the local right. media chose to be the spokesperson of something. Right. So uh, I, I think that that that's one of it but but here's another question i have for you in in this regard professor legat is do these people really you know <laughs> do these people really know what to do 
<laughs> do they really uh, do they really have a grasp of what the people that they say they represent are facing? Well, you know, um, I, I, I think so. Yes, um, you know, I've done um, quite a bit of interviews with um, black elected officials on the local and state level. And um, most of them um, will acknowledge um, many of the problems of of their constituents, from Mm -hmm. education, Mm -hmm. jobs, um, particularly most recently interviewing uh, local officials um, in a number of these small, small cities, they were concerned about, expressed concerned about uh, development being focused on downtown as opposed to low-income neighborhoods. Now, mm-hmm. the problem is to address those problems are much, much more challenging than getting a black appointment here and a black appointment there. Mm-hmm. They're in the but, dilemma but, of... But here, here, here's the deal. You know, when you deal with that, that issue has been around... For, for for at least 20 years. And, and and one of the things that I often think about, and this was my problem with uh, Julio Castro as a secretary mm-hmm. of HUD, who should have known better, who should have been able right. to provide more a lot more guidance and a lot more articulation of the specific issues, is that every community has, by law, when there is federal subsidies to a development, every community has the right to meet with the local federal officials right. to either reject or accept a developer's plan. And I'm not understand, and this is where the representation thing comes in. Right. And I'm not I'm not sure and I might disagree with you a little bit that mm-hmm. elected officials are on top of the mechanisms oh. that might be available to their constituencies. Well, I'm not sure if it's a matter of being aware or not aware. One is they're not aware then why, but also um the 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 um real issue here as i as I see it is that uh the black electoral officials uh one the very nature of the beast almost has a uh a kind of middle class perspective on public policy mm-hmm. and how they there you go. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Secondly, though, um, secondly, and, and I think this perhaps uh, for many um, uh, more important, they don't they don't have the um, the politics to do what needs to be done. Simply, is not there. Right now, a lot of forces that work white as an eye. Um, to change how local governments and and urban um, 
politics in larger cities, how they develop an economic development strategy is 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 a challenge to to uh, the capitalist class. They want these mm-hmm. cities mm-hmm. to ensure that they accumulate more capital and mm-hmm. and and to set up to serve the needs and services of of the of the middle class. To challenge that requires more than one or two um, elected officials who would like to put forth that agenda. It requires a a political constituency that understand and demand those things. Mm-hmm. Those officials, mm-hmm. and the problem is, uh, one is that an elected official, it, the, the the problem is so much deeper than than having one or two elected officials uh, or, or in any jurisdiction trying to do the right thing. They, uh, because in the end, the nature of the beast, that is an elected official, is, is to try to get along with his or her colleagues so that hopefully they'll be able to get things done. And also to ascend in the legislative process to assume leadership positions. And, and if that's the nature of the game, it constrains them in terms of what they are prepared to do unless there is a movement, there is an organized force, there is a constituency that they understand to take this position is not necessarily a threat. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Let me ask you about that. I have long complained and whined and yelled and screamed and had a drink on the idea (laughs) that that, uh, we do not have an adequate political infrastructure in this country that would usher in support and articulation of the demands that are required uh, to get past the government firewall. So is answer, based on what what you just uh, uh, articulated, is the answer class-based politics and would class-based remedies be sufficient to address the needs of of black Americans you know let's take for instance let's take an example to discuss this the $15 minimum wage that did not pass it's not part of y'all government cheese so y'all can get mad, but didn't, but y'all didn't do nothing about it before it was time. So the cheese, that part of the cheese got chunked off. You know how you 
uh, reach right. in the refrigerator and chunk off a piece of cheese. <laughs> well, oh, that's gone. All, all. <laughs> so, right. I understand that even if it had passed with this COVID rescue plan, which is not a risk, they're not rescuing you on a lot of people. Well, they're trying to rescue a lot of people, or they want to seem like they're rescuing a lot of people. But if that had been part of the plan, it was going to be time-framed. And I understand that politicians did not, you know, like Mitt Romney uh, with his billionaire self, didn't want to put the burden of, companies, businesses having to move to $15 an hour without preparation. I understand that. But how could class politics have sufficiently moved that in this bill? Oh, good, good question. Well, what I mean by class politics in this particular instance is that Let's suppose that uh, let me let me make this point first. Uh, uh, throughout up through through the thirties, forties, fifties, up you know, Asia Randolph, for the most part, uh, blacks activists understood the relationship between the needs and interests of working class people and and civil rights. You know, um, Preston Smith talks about it in terms of racial democracy and social democracy. Racial democracy largely means black folks are getting the rights that are entitled to them by American Constitution, American Democratic Creed. Social democracy are concerned with uh, redistribution of resources to the extent that it deals with the problems of working class black people as well was social democratic um, policy proposals, public housing, you know, living wage. Let's just suppose for a moment that that was was still in place, and and the black caucus, um, it was it was understood by Joe Manchin that if you come out against uh, a minimum wage, uh, increase in the minimum wage to fifteen dollars an hour, you're going to have the black caucus on your head. And other Democrats understood that because all Democrats, well, not all, but certainly Democrats in in jurisdictions that have a significant black population and the Democratic Party, by and large, understands that uh, the last thing they want is serious opposition from, from black people because they know in the final analysis they can't win without that that vote. And they also believe, correctly and correctly, that Congressional Black Caucus speaks for black people. If it was understood by Democrats that $15 an hour was the agenda for the Black Caucus, we would be in a different place now. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But, 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 But wait a minute, Professor. Are you telling me you are telling us that the CBC did not make that clear to the party? 
Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm. Well, yeah. I'm saying it to the sense that they did not make it to clear enough to the part to the party, and and a part of the public discussion that those who are involved in decision making understood that if you really go against this, you're going to have to deal with the caucus in a serious way. Who they're concerned about, Bernie, you know, the, the, only, the, the voices we heard was largely Bernie Sanders and you were fighting against, uh, for the, for the for mm-hmm. increase in the minimum wage. Yes, I, if, if, if I, I, well, I'm, I'm not saying exactly what the outcome would be, but certainly it would have been different. There's, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there's no way giving um, the role that, that is credit to black voters for, for, for uh, black voters for Joe Biden getting the nomination, giving uh, the role of Jim Clyburn in that, uh, it would be it would have it would be a certainly a different place, and mm-hmm. and the fight of course yes it would have been different, and I believe uh, it I believe we probably would have had uh, that the uh, fifteen dollars an hour. If the Black Caucus would have made it their agenda, if they would have gone to Black communities, telling them to call this Congressperson, going to do what they do when they want to have something, of course I believe that. Yes, I do. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. There wasn't a fight around that uh, from the Black Caucus. Look, when <laughs> it's interesting, when um, Democrats acquire leadership of, of uh, the majority of the House. And the whole debate was now the Democratic majority. We got, we have to have black leadership within within the Democratic caucus. And there was questions about you know well you know where you know maybe Jim Clyburn should be the speaker. He never ran for, but Jim Clyburn did say, "Well, the black caucus is my base." And he just didn't say that. He said that because he understood the way that the Democratic caucus in Congress sees the role of the Black caucus in speaking to and about the agenda and policy priorities of the Black people. It just so happens, not just so happens, but most of us don't necessarily think that they articulate the most appropriate policy agenda for the majority of Black people. Now, um, one of the reasons they are able to assume the role that they they have is that they have played the game such that there is an understanding among all of the players that the caucus too is committed to uh, the present class arrangement and not to prepare to threat the interests of the capitalist class. I mean that was kind of the bargain, right? You give us what we want. I mean, not not literally, uh, but but what has worked out so beautifully is that the Congressional Black Caucus agenda is in line with the Democratic Party agenda, and both agendas are in line with the needs of neoliberalism and the concerns of the majority of working class people: black, white, green, pink, or blue. Uh, a secondary. You know, for most people in this audience, um, 
for our longtime listeners, no one is surprised by that statement. But I, right. I, I, am, I am encouraging people to be enraged by the truth of that statement. Um, right. You know, um, the last time I went to a CBC weekend <laughs> was forever ago. But I took my mother. I have two mothers, and one of my mothers was a domestic all of her life. Right. And um, we went back to the hotel after going to one or two. Uh, she she met me in D.C. because she had had never been to D.C. and she wanted to go to D.C. and I was going to D.C. I said, okay, why don't you just meet me in D.C. and we'll spend a week in D.C. and we'll go to the CBC. And, hmm. and, and, and what she said when we went back to the hotel is she said, these jokers are just playing around. <laughs> and 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 here we are and that was um that was probably around um uh, 15 years ago and here we are we're saying right. the same thing cuz these jokers are just playing around so right. from from where i sit i am saying the same thing over and over and over that we have to begin to build an infrastructure and we have to play music from that infrastructure, music from which they dance. Right. And the way to do that is to organize and mobilize at the levels that they are not doing that no Absolutely. electoral politics, even your even your friend Mr. Bernie Sanders, um, <laughs> I I had to say to him in a <laughs> I had to say to him about seven or eight years ago, when was the last time that you have had a meeting with the tenants associations of all of the public housing developments wow. in your state? Um, but anyway, I, I, I tend to jack people way, up. By the way, uh-huh. I, I want you to know that part of the effort Medicare Hall in South Carolina, I did and we did go talk to uh, people public housing because I, well, uh, I, I'm agree yeah, with you. Yeah, you have that's, to talk that's, to people. That, that's where it's happening. Right. You know, uh, right. making partnerships with uh, community medical centers and hospitals where right. poor people go to get health care, to talk Absolutely. to them about health care. And, and we've got to get smart in, in that way. I do want to talk to you some more about, um, it, it's just astounding to me that we have, we still rely on some emoting, you know, because I'm never going to give up the idea that we have to organize both by race and by class. Um, okay. <laughs> excuse okay. me. I'm never, I'm never going to be invested in people who choose um, to have a, um, a, a a political ideology that's centered in themselves. 
I got you. Because, you know, um, all these black people who don't want to talk about black black political empowerment until uh, they get their feelings hurt, um, that's that's <laughs> not where I'm I'm coming from. Um, as a scholar living in South Carolina, I want to talk to you about some of the mechanisms that you're using in Medicare for All. Um, and we are not doing enough, and I don't care. Y'all can drag out Danny Glover a hundred times. We are not doing <laughs> enough of or- <laughs> of organizing uh, unions uh, right. within all of the black classes, whether it be uh, the waiters and porters at um, Mar Largo or the uh, the domestic workers and medical home aid, home care aides, all over Florida. Mm. It's a thousand of them. You go in the supermarket and everybody's got a home home aid person with them, but me. What am I doing mm. wrong? <laughs> but <laughs> anyway, I'm going to take a break, uh, Professor Leggett, and thank you so very much for. We need to have this conversation, and when we come back, we're going to. Uh, do some more talking about what the mechanisms, you know, and part of the problem, part of the problem really is that gentrification has done a job, uh, made the job of organizers and mobilizers a lot more both interesting and complex, and, and we need to talk about that. We need to talk about the neoliberalism that most people have no consciousness about and how it drives their lives. You're listening to Our Common Ground. Our guest tonight is Professor Willie Leggett. And when we come back, uh, we're going to talk with him some more and take your calls at 347. You all better write it down because you know I forget to give this number. 347-838-9852. Thank you all for uh, those of you who are in our chat room and on our boards, and we will be right back. This overwhelming support for Biden, given his uh, uh, political history and the expectation, I think, that black people have from electoral politics. Over the last 40 years, they have been beat um, across the head about limiting uh, their expectations. During my field work, I had a, uh, a state senator said to me that they made a mistake in his word by socializing black people to believe that their problems could be solved through politics. And and this is him feeling pressured to respond to those problems and or at least expecting that he would respond to them when he knew or felt that he could not. And, and and to some extent, you know, since certainly since the 90s or uh, since the Justice Jackson campaign, black policy has largely been about suppressing or moderating black political demands and defining the expectations. So why would they, they why, why so? Well, I don't think we should take those endorsements lightly. That endorsement... <laughs> Uh, was important. Forty percent of the voters in South Carolina said that Clyburn named Clyburn as a major factor for their Biden vote. Wow. 
But Clarence wasn't the only one. The Clarence wasn't the only one to make that assertion. Uh, a state senator, uh, Kip, Kimson from Charleston, said Joe Biden is the candidate that we trust. Thank you for joining us at Our Common Ground with Janice Graham, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. Stay tuned and we'll be right back with more. Because our society is only as strong as all its individuals, the United Negro College Fund has helped educate thousands of doctors and researchers, but we need more. Thousands of architects and engineers, but we need more. Thousands of teachers and biologists, but we need more. And when disease, injustice, pollution, poverty, and countless other problems threaten to pull us apart, we had better educate every single person who has the potential to solve our problems. And to educate more people, we need more of your help. Give to the United Negro College Fund. With so much at stake, a mind is a terrible thing to waste. That what we see before our eyes, the sky is green and the grass is blue. But one thing you can't deny, these people are sabotaging this country. Nothing comes to a sleeper but a dream. Drilling down, just damn. When injustice becomes law, resistance becomes duty. This is Alpha, hosting the best of pushback talk radio. The Alpha Show. He's back. The Alpha Show. How do you wake up the entire African-American community to the hidden issue of mental health? It showed up in my life through one of my best friends. And we've been friends for over 30 years. One story at a time. If we would have known earlier, you know, we would have been more, much more supportive with her. Once I reached out to my sister... It got a little better. Once I told my mother, it got a little better. The more I talked about it, I felt it coming off. The healing is in me, and the healing in the journey can also be extended to others. It's our community and our mental health. Giving voice to what you're feeling is part of the healing. If you're strong enough to just open your mouth, that's all it takes. And the most revolutionary and healing thing that black people can do right now is to love one another. It's time to share ourselves. Healing starts with us. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. The ad- You're listening to Our Common Ground, speaking truth to power and ourselves. Broadcasting bold, brave, black. I'm Janice Graham. And I'll be listening for you. Look at her. She's the best.
this overwhelming support for Biden, given his uh, uh, um, political history. So the puzzle, on one hand, is given how they respond to these exit polls and given where they fit within the class arrangement, meaning the majority of black people fit within the class arrangement of American society, it seems to be in their material answer to vote for Sanders, but why didn't they? But it's also the most important question that we're probably able to get a better hand on is trying to explain the role of the black political elite in how, in the discourse that they engage in and how they explain politics of their, uh, the people who, who they claim to represent. How do they define the issues? How do they define what's possible? And see that as, as a mechanism in terms of how they try to shape uh, um, black political participation. This is Our Common Ground with Janice Graham, transforming truth to power. One broadcast at a time. And we thank you for being here with us here at Our Common Ground tonight, aligning black policy priorities into the game of electoral politics. How do we do that? And we have with us, helping us out, political scientist, Professor Willie Leggett. And we thank him for being with us. We uh, write it down. Our number is 347-838-9888. Five two, and we thank all of you who are in our chat room and on our board. And don't forget, you have to hit the number one when we start taking calls. Uh, so that that's like holding up your hand. You know, I, I know some of you all went to Catholic school. I went to black school. I was in a segregated school, so I, I, I know how to hold up my hand. <laughs> and sometimes I like not to. <laughs> Professor Leggett, thank you so very much for being with us. I, I do want to tell who, people okay. I, I do want to tell people that the Democratic Socialists um of America they're launching an all out national mobilization tomorrow, uh trying to mobilize ninety two thousand members and four hundred local bodies to pass the Protecting the Right to Organize Pro Act. Uh, Representative Jamal Bowman of New York, uh, flight Mm -hmm. attendant, AFA president, Sarah Nelson, and author Naomi Klein, going to kick it off tomorrow. And uh, organizers anticipate that this is going to be a very important meeting around the PRO Act, and it's expected to reach the House next week, and that's what you should be watching next week. Um, so it's the PRO Act. Uh, these people are trying to shut you all down, and you all need oh, yeah. to get in the mix to, to keep them from shutting you down. Also, next week at Our Common Ground, in case some of you all leave, uh, our guest will be Charles Jenkins of the Coalition of Black Trade Unionists and 
um, Jarabu Hill from the Mississippi Workers' Center for Human Rights, and we're going to be talking about um, how we break break the stronghold on union uh, organizing and union activists uh, across the country. And, of course, I'm going to be asking them about who they're organizing. Professor Leggett, let's, uh, when we went to break, um, one of the things that we were moving into was the idea as to, I mean, I, I do think that we have to have some concrete ideas about how we mobilize in our communities um, and how we organize in our communities so that when we put our foot, I, I, I don't do knees on necks, but when we put our foot on the necks of people who we give our votes to, we right. have some juice. Right. And right now we don't have any juice. Right. And we right. don't have any juice because one of the things is who pays for these people to come to the dance. Right. And, and you know you dance with the people who bring you here. Right. And there's a disconnect in them finding a balance, you know, because if the Koch brothers gave me money, uh, of course I would u- be using bounty uh, paper towels. But right. If I'm bleeding, I'm not using their paper towels. I'm using something else. <laughs> so, <laughs> so give us some guidance on this, and then we'll take some calls. Oh, well, that's a, that's a, that's a challenging one. Well, you know, um, I think those of us who uh, agree with the statement you just made, that we're not getting from our elected officials what we should be getting. Then we have began um, uh, meeting, um, you know, black people where they are. And that Mm -hmm. means uh, going to various institutions where black people, you know, are in terms of NAACP, um, even... um, uh, legislative caucuses in every state and you know around the country that what we needed uh, was was important as i think it began to talk to black people wherever they are about concrete policy issues for instance um if we um had sufficient um sufficiently uh, educated and talked to black people about why better care for all or why they must demand a living wage and not accept anything less than that. And mm-hmm. and the people who they le- elected had to respond to that in the campaign in a serious way. You know, politicians all politicians know what issues they can skirt around and what what policies that they have to um have to respond to in a positive way. 
and what determines that is, is the expectations and 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 the education of their citizens. And what I mean by that, if there is a constituency built around Medicare for all, and, and an electoral official understands that her constituent, people who voted for her, expect her to vote for that and to push that, he or she will do it. The mm-hmm. problem we mm-hmm. have uh, is that that these these officials are largely not elected around some specific concrete policy where people expect them in a real way uh, to, to support those policies once get into office, and mm-hmm. and that can only come about. I mean. The real thing of politics is, is, is one is slow, but it's also about building a constituency around um, certain policies, and more important, more important than policy in the broad sense, a sense of of what it is that we should expect government to do. Mm-hmm. But we mm-hmm. also have to talk about that in concrete policies. Yeah, if we elect candidate A, she understands that she is going to Congress and she is going to vote and support Medicare for all. Because mm-hmm. every meeting she went to, we brought this up. Everybody she talks mm-hmm. to talking about it. And that's the kind of hard work that has to be done. It, you know, it's not, by the way, we also need to look at elections and the candidates available in 2000. And 22 represent what we have done from 2020 to 2022. Mm-hmm. In other mm-hmm. words, you can't wait until you know people necessarily start running. It is yeah. what issues that have we been talking to people about, and yeah. what individuals have embraced those issues. So we will mm-hmm. have those individuals as candidates. You know, politics is more than from one election to another one. It is what happens between one election to the next election. How have we talked to people? How what what kind of activities have we engaged in to build a constituency around what I would call social democratic uh, agenda, education? Mm-hmm. You know, the public good, as uh, Terry talks about it so well in in his book, the public good. How we build a constituency around. Uh, uh, the public good, mm-hmm. and that mm-hmm. and 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 so that doesn't happen from you know. So it's it's a lot of work involved, and mm-hmm. we have to begin mm-hmm. to talk to black people about this in the organization that they belong to, you know, where they are. We have to deal with them where mm-hmm. they are, and and get them to understand and heighten. You know, we used to talk about doing the, when I was in uh, undergrad undergraduate, heighten the political consciousness. But we really have begun to. Increase the the expectations of Black people in terms of what we should expect from government. Mm-hmm. What let we me, should me, expect from people to elect to public office. Before we go to our phones, let me throw out one example. One example is that uh, Cory Bush of uh, New Rep, Missouri. Everybody right. knows that her brand, her brand is Ferguson, and everything right. happened in regard to from Michael Brown all the way to the election of Cory Bush 
people know exactly what she represents. And part and of what she is one of the signatures on the letter to Bezel. But go ahead. Though. Exactly. Well, but but what she did, she was an educator. She was an activism educator before she was a candidate. And I think that part of the problem in, especially in the black community with Bernie Sanders, had to do with he showed up as a candidate before he showed up as a uh, representative of the issues of Medicare for all, blah, 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 blah. And and I and I mean I even personally, if you haven't come to talk to me about fair housing issues or uh, affordable housing issues, or if I haven't had any engagement on uh, issues that are important to me before you become a candidate, I'm looking at you sad at. I'm looking at you <laughs> well, sad at. That's, that's all I'm, I'm saying. That book. <laughs> I, I can appreciate that, but but uh, that doesn't distinguish Bernie Sanders from other candidates, right? In other words, none no, of it doesn't. Do. It, I'm, but I'm trying to tell you what I'm trying to express is that he was perfectly packaged, but black people rejected him for a reason, and I think that part of that reason had to do with. Masada, but that's <laughs> no, only a small part. That's only a small part of it. Um, let's go to the phone. Six four six has been waiting for a while. Six four six, you're on the air at our common ground with Professor Willie Leggett. Good afternoon. Well, excuse me. Good evening to you and your guests. You know. It, it always amazes me how we as a people talk so lovingly and glaring about the Democratic Party and the possibilities of what they may do once they get in office. And the realization is that the Democratic Party does nothing but use black people like a condom. I mean, there's a fight, there's a fight right now going on for the John Lewis bill. Now, in order for the Democratic Party to flourish, they would have to pass that bill. I don't care about anything else that they do. If they don't pass that bill, they go nowhere. They lose in 2022. They lose in 2024. And they'll basically lose forever because of the simple fact that the Republicans are about the business of suppressing the vote on the level that the way the courts are stacked right now, they'll get away with it. Now, mind you, what's going on in Georgia, if it passes, the reality is that there's maybe 23 other states that will implement that same type of laws which will suppress the vote to the point to where as the Democrats won't win anything. And, and all of that, is there a question, Jay? Yeah, the question is this. 
when are the so-called blacks in America going to put enough pressure on the Democrats so that they won't be used like a condom and they'll get something done and at least be able to feel the pleasure of getting screwed? Okay. Okay. Um, let, let me approach that this way. Um, that threw you for a loop, huh, bro? Pardon me? It threw you for a little think, loop, the condo, the condo reference. I know. Go ahead. <laughs> it's not a complex <laughs> question. And I think no, no, that... No, 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 uh, no. The condo the, the reference was, was shocking. That's all. No, no, no. The, the point I want to make, I guess, is, and is that uh, there's a tendency uh, to look at the Democratic Party um, as if it is um, external, right, uh, to the black community or to black people, and black people are on the outside making demands on the Democratic Party, right? And and what the truth of the matter is that the Democratic Party, and I think we're really talking about the leadership of the Democratic Party, the, the decision makers within the Democratic Party, the major players within, within the Democratic Party, are both black and white. And so um, the, the, the issue then, it, what's important is not looking at the Democratic Party as some entity external to uh, to black people, but it is a political institution that has a particular, fundamentally, a particular, uh, fundamentally, an objective of doing two things, right? One, making sure that there's no serious challenge to the power of corporate America, and two, uh, providing certain public goods and services to its voters. And both black and white political elite try to walk that thin line. And the way we get out of that, I think, is to offer an alternative agenda to uh, the Democratic Party with a force that can 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 uh, force the political elites to respond to that agenda and in a positive way. The I I, I just think the, because we I think at this stage of the game, if we acknowledge uh, class among black people. It's really not accurate to say that Democratic Party takes white people for granted um, because the Democratic Party takes all working class people for granted to the extent that they do not implement policies to benefit those workers. And so the question is, how can we get Democratic Party to respond to the needs and answers uh, to working class people, and this answers in terms of the question that the brother raised. It will be uh, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, right? Um, and I think um, that the, the the real problem in getting that passed is going to be uh, 
the extent to which uh, uh, you get a few moderate Democrats. Um, um, one, to the extent that the Democratic Party decides, both black and white members of the Democratic Party, uh, to um, do away with the filibuster. Well, you have to. You have to at this stage in the game get rid of the filibuster if you don't. If you don't, it's a wrap for the Democratic yeah, Party. Yeah. Let's be let's be honest because okay, we're going to be honest about it, Jay. We all agree. So what we gonna how, do about how's that going to happen? How, how does it? Well, how does I, it I I think that's, that's I what think I'm that there is an I think that there is sufficient pressure and um, Professor Leggett, correct me if I'm. And in, 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 I'm going in the wrong direction in thinking, but I think that there's sufficient um, pressure on the White House right now uh, to get rid of the filibuster. Am I right, <sighs> Professor Leggett? I, I I'm not sure yet about that. Um, I, it, it's, it's building up. It's building. Um, um, you know, this is the. You know, this is the the problem with that. These folks are going to have to figure out what they're going to do with the people like Joe Manchin and those six Democrats that prevented the uh, living wage. Mm-hmm. I mean, the fifteen dollars. You have to crush they Joe Manchin. To take, you have to take away all of his power. You have to take That's away right. all of the power that Joe Manchin has and basically crush him. If you don't. He'll run rough shot all over you, yeah. and that's basically what he's doing. Now the question yeah. is, and I'll leave on this note: is do Joe Biden and the people that back him and control him have the will to do it? And I say no. Have a good night, and I appreciate it. Put me back on hold. Okay, thanks, Jay. Jay has been saying, Jay has been saying that for months now that Mansion right. is the problem, and. I have suggested to everybody who will listen, including uh, the new chair of the DNC, that what you have to do is you have to go in into West Virginia because 79% of Joe uh, Manchin's um, constituency would have gotten a $1,600 check. Right. Uh, and since they renegotiated the bill, only 49% will get a $1,400 check. And what Harrison has to do, Jamie Harrison of South Carolina has to do, is he has to take a legion of educators into West Virginia to let them know, the people who vote for Manchin, let them know how they've been screwed. Right. Well, I don't know. The other thing is that the yeah the DNC establishment has got to play hardball with these uh, uh, Democratic people, representatives in the House and in the Senate, who would dare. To go against the platform, right, right. Well, yeah, it's going to have to be. I mean, you know, Joe Biden is not exactly um, uh, 
one who history uh, would, would indicate is not one who has uh, advocated for. You know, yeah, but he's, yeah, uh, he's working to be the it, second coming of Barack Obama. Right. Uh, on on these on these Democrats, and another thing that may be happening here, you know, Joe Manchin uh, may in fact be kind of. Um, Serving in the interest for Joe Biden, right? Um, mm-hmm. That he is the one that that preventing uh, the Democratic Party from moving as far to the left as we would like to see see the party go. Uh, and if the Joe Biden and the Democratic Party look, three um, there are a lot a president and the leadership of the Senate can do to two or three or four or five senators that want to um, go against the will of the party. Mm-hmm. They have elected mm-hmm. not to do so. You can, the, the party can discipline those members if it chooses to do so. Mm-hmm. And they have mm-hmm. not. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's, it's going to be on the progressives within the Democratic Party to to say, look, if Joe Manchin want to play tough, and he's not going to vote if you don't do what he wants, well, guess what? We are not going to vote if you don't do what we want, and mm-hmm. let them mm-hmm. fight it out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and part, you know, you know, just a question of of how committed, and we don't have any reason to believe that it is. How committed is the Democratic Party? Uh, how committed is it to a, a a progressive agenda? I mean, they folded on a minimum wage. And by the way, $15 an hour is not even a living no, wage in living wage, exactly. A living wage is $24 an hour in the United States of America on March 6, 2021. Right. So and they're talking about living, you know, twenty fifteen dollars an hour, two thousand twenty five or so. Is is so, is, so you know? Yeah. So tonight we sit on three very distinct political issues: as poor people, as working poor people, as retired people, as people who are in poverty. Um, but black people have an awareness that is so far that so far exceeds the awareness that white people, Asian people, Hispanic people have about um about their class, who they are. Uh and then there's some some negro people uh, <laughs> and, and 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 somehow they uh have they don't know. decided that they're, they're, they're middle class. There are no middle class black people in this country. Y'all need to write a memo. But anyway, <laughs> Professor Leggett, I digress. We have three okay. issues. The $15 okay. minimum wage. We have on Wednesday the House passed uh, H.R. 1280, which is the... George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. And then we have, as Jay brings up, the For the People Act, uh, uh, which yeah. would establish 
Election day is a federal holiday. Automatic voter registration allow for widespread early voting and voting by mail, as well as reforming campaign finance. Good luck on that. Uh, right. On the on HR twelve eighty, and you all need to put this in your language pouches so that you have some understanding about this. H.R. 1280 is the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, and and what it does, um, it's a police reform bill that would ban chokeholds, would ban no-knock warrants, and overhaul qualified immunity protections. Professor Leggett, correct me if I'm wrong. This stuff is Wednesday it was frozen ice cream and today it's liquid. Right. Am I right? Yeah. You are. Okay. Okay. And uh, so, how do we get the people in, who are listening to this to begin to understand that th- this is three things on the plate? for poor people, working poor people, people in poverty, and and some other people, and don't argue with your Uncle Joe that somehow it has nothing to do with him. So how do we get people to begin to understand that phone calls make a difference, Email makes a difference, letters make a difference, text messages make a difference, and getting out in the community and beginning. I mean, I believe in individual activism. If there's something bothering me, I make a little flyer that tells people what it's all about and it explains it in, in their language. And uh, Because this is what, and you said something that, that's so dear to my heart, that you have to meet black people where they are. So how do we make the flyers in our neighborhood then begin to touch bases in our churches? I don't have no church, so... Alpha, the Alpha <laughs> Show is my church. Uh, <laughs> so since I don't have a church, I can pass out. I, I mean, I have been known to go into a McDonald's in Boston, passing out. I, I decided, okay, I'm going to go to all the McDonald's in 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 my neighborhood, and there, you know, there's a McDonald's on every corner, and there is. Uh, a little Haitian church and a little another kind of church over here, you know, those those storefront churches. So I made all these flyers. I can't remember what this was about. And I hit right. the McDonald's first. I just went through McDonald's and handing out flyers. My hand, I made the flyers and in the parking lot, went inside. The manager thought I was a, I don't know, in one of the uh, McDonald's thought I was, trying to start a riot or something but those are the things that we have to do and then in doing those things you meet you know like I always say our common ground is the place where friends come to meet allies and comrades 
you meet your comrades. Right. You go to the, you know, your local council person is having some meeting and he's talking bullshit. So you go to the right. bullshit meeting and you get everybody straight about how much bullshit there's going on in that meeting. And then people right. see you and they want your number. And then when you know anything, you're in your house with 12 people talking about that <laughs> issue. That's how it happens, right. folks. It Ain't is. nobody coming looking for y'all. So right. let's talk to the professional because, you know, I just think that we have to have some way in which we begin to build this this um this infrastructure if 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 you if you subscribe to to Comcast or subscribe to Sprint or subscribe to whatever it's nothing to send an email to the director of public affairs and say you all know we all mad all the black people mad at y'all <laughs> I mean and, and this is why <laughs> Right. So, I mean, go ahead. We don't have. I mean, we really have to figure out how how to build that kind of infrastructure. And you know, you know, as I said earlier, you go to each of us have have to begin to you know go to these organizations and functions uh, where black people are and begin to to uh, to talk to them because what uh, you know we kind of know what needs to be done but how you how, how you go about doing it is indeed a challenge i mean the being able having an infrastructure as 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 you say where is not that we could have uh, working class black people writing their congressperson doing emails going to meetings and raising uh, the questions about, you know, policies that impact their daily lives. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. That's, you know, that that's the challenge. Now, part of, um, you know, the work we were doing with Medicare for All One is, uh, you know, we had pledge cards and, and, you know, where we, as voters and voters sign cards pledging to vote for Medicare, a candidate support uh, Medicare for all. Now that did two things. One, we accumulate thousands of cards demonstrating that people supported, but also it offered an opportunity to uh, to talk to people about what Medicare for all is and why it's something uh, that we should have. And secondly, uh, you know, we we uh, did presentations across the state. Um, from churches, community centers, barber shops, uh, you know, explaining to people that would never attend uh, a meeting with people who that's already committed to Medicare for all. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I think that's the kind of model, right? The kind of things that um, those of us who want to see. Uh, public policy, broad, big public policies that transform human lives, right? Uh, um, 
on give people health care, uh, quality public education, college education, uh, mm-hmm. secure retirement. I mean, the, we can only acquire those things that we build a constituency around those things. Yeah. And yeah. it seems to me that we have to begin uh, to talk to black people uh, about big public policies and 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 fundamentally, what should we respect expect from from our government? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Who is to tell us that the government should? Yeah. Who is to tell us that the government should not provide free higher education? Who is to tell us that public schools should be funded based on the wealth of the district that the kids live in? Who came up with that? Yeah. You know, why should we accept yep. that? And, I've been and hollering it, 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 unequal funding, unequal funding. Right. So we have to talk to, I mean, so, you know, beginning process. And, of course, you got to, from that, from the discussions and and different expectations, it provides the opportunity to build organization and an infrastructure yeah. To do those things. I mean, civil rights organizations, labor, all these organizations are built because they're, the people came to an understanding that the concerns and the issues that they have are not being addressed by the institutions that are now in place. And there's a need to build different organizations and structures or infrastructure to address these issues. The, the, um, you know, but but here here is the, here is also an issue when we're doing this, uh, Professor Leggett, uh, is that we have to also speak the language of the people that we're trying to organize. You know, your 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 friend, um, uh, Toure, I mean, Toure, uh Reed and and Pascal Robert. I'm always talking to them about this. And that is, it can't be language where you lose people. It right. has to be in their language, you know, and, and that's very important. We only have a little bit of time left, but I just want to ask you, what y'all going to do about Tim Scott? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Tim Scott's Scott's brother, cousin, whatever, he listens to this show all the time. He's been with us ever since we've been on the Internet, even when we're at U.S. Networks. Uh, But even before Tim Scott was a senator, uh, uh, how do we deal with Tim Scott? The only thing I can tell people about Tim Scott Look, we should be thankful that we only have one, right? I mean, if you look at the United States Senate and these Republicans, there's only one black Republican Senate, right? So on one level, uh, maybe that's something that we should be thankful that we only have one. Other than that, you know, I don't know what to do about Brother Tim. <laughs> you know, I I I, I retired because I left a job that I absolutely loved. I loved my job. I loved the work that I was doing. I loved the idea that I could guide my work and and I could guide right. people and 
push people and cuss people out and all kinds of stuff. Uh, And I was doing important work. Um, You know, one part of my job was I was the New England liaison with the uh, congressional delegation, congressional of of New England, Connecticut, Rhode Island, uh, Vermont, your boy, uh, Maine, <laughs> New Hampshire, and, and and I I love the idea that I could sit down with uh, the congressional delegation and talk to them about white supremacy and try to teach them about white privilege and try to teach them about how you you delegate your 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 policy decisions based on the people, the population that is your constituency. But anyway, um, but one of the things that we have to figure out is how you deal with, you know, if you've got the Confederacy um, in both the House and the Senate, and these people told you yes. the South will rise again, and it has. And yeah. how we be, how we begin to do some of that, you know, that we have to think bold. But, you know, in addition to class, we have to think black. And that is there are people who rely on people who have resources, who have opportunity, who are in the places where they will never be, to be able to be change agents. Right. And, and 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 that really means that we can't allow the dictation of our dollars to be less than the dollars that we spend. And that is with businesses, where we spend right. our money. I am real concerned, you know, for instance, you know, I'm 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 thinking um, I was in a parking lot on yesterday, and all these black people are going into Publix, and I, I didn't have any flyers with me, but I was trying to figure out, how am I going to tell these people, these black people, they shouldn't be going into Publix, <laughs> that we're boycotting. You know, um, I wanted to yell out, don't you know we're boycotting Publix? But anyway, <clears throat> and people become discouraged when, they can't understand um, when they think that the politics is so complex that they can't figure it out and they go, oh, well, whatever. I'm just going to go to my nice car, get in, go to my nice house, and whatever's happening to the people, the, the, them people getting killed in the street, that's not my business. I mean, and that's how people become discouraged, and that's how our politics becomes stale, becomes dead, becomes like a ghost of itself. So before you leave, uh, one of the things, just one thing that you would like to leave with this audience that you think is most important us to change our ways. Well, that's a good question. Um, I think for for black people, 
the most important question is what kind of political activity um, must we engage in to ensure that it will result in policies to benefit the majority of black people. Mm-hmm. And I stipulate majority of black people. Uh, that means you're not looking for an appointment, you an appointment there. And that uh, it requires political activity. We have, uh, it requires that we are involved in a significant way to impact public policy to benefit the majority of black people in terms of things that all human beings care about, decent living, mm-hmm. education, mm-hmm. secure retirement, you know, vacations. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what I live with. Mhm. Okay. Um so what are you in, involved in? What we can what can we hear from you, see from you over going into 22? Well, I hope um 22 one I expect to uh, have completed the uh, uh, a manuscript dealing with some of the issues that we talked about tonight, in particular, um, uh, looking at the role of um, um, black uh, elected officials and, and black political elites in general, and 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 the development of neoliberalism uh, in the United States and and its impact on the quality of life of uh, the majority of black mm-hmm. people. Mhm. I mean, a lot of people in this audience call up and and they want to talk about what's going on with the U.S. Postal Service, and they do not understand that 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 what is happening at the Postal Service since um, Ronald Reagan has been the positioning of it by the by the Republicans and with and with consent by Democrats um, to to change it and have it uh, as part of the, uh, what I call the wave of um, increasing and developing neoliberalism in this country. Of course. It, it's all the, you know, um, neoliberalism is, is to minimize, limit the public sector, and to advance the market, right? And mm-hmm. and self, you know, responsibility as opposed to the obligations and what are the responsibilities of the state. Yeah. Uh, and and unfortunately, um, Democrats as well as Republicans uh, have been, and as well as Black Democrats in terms of Black political elites, uh, play a significant role in in the development. Of neoliberalism in this country, and it is important to acknowledge, in my view, uh, the role of the black political elite, because this is yeah. not a, about, you know, black folks being 
excluded from some of the political developments and direction of this country, black elites have been a part of that decision making. Yes, yes. And well, they they come through. <laughs> It's 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 not like you could be on YouTube and you could talk forever. (laughs) We got timelines here. Okay, I'm sorry. Thank you so very much. We're gonna have to have you come back because I would like to talk to you more in depth about the advance of neoliberalism in this country, and maybe we can get you with. a couple of other people that we have had here at our common ground. Thank you so very much, and all of you, you all be safe out there. And we'll see you next week. Already have this disadvantage. The game is close over before it starts to a large extent, unless you have something uh, like maybe Obama in two thousand eight. Thank you for joining us at Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Thank you so much for joining us at Our Common Ground tonight with our guest, Professor Willie Leggett. Special thanks to Professor Willie Leggett for joining us. We are always so pleased to have you with us here in the Black Truth Century. Please join us each Saturday. Updates, commentary, and guide to what we're doing at Our Common Ground is available at www.ourcommonground.com. Please help us grow by letting your friends and allies and comrades know that we are here. Transforming Truth to Power, one broadcast at a time. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you.